0: Are there any questions on what we've talked about so far? Any questions? Yes, sir. Yes. You said you were passive when you first entered your life. Uh, yes. With your wife. Yeah. Now... <clears throat> Assuming that everybody can take from this meeting today that, uh, pyramid sitting on a spiritual foundation. Now, everybody's not real competent in the first part of that pyramid. Yes. And as you go up, everybody has different variants yes. of, of their experience. Can you give a little ray of hope for those who aren't too, uh, well experienced? Absolutely. Okay. Can I give you a ray of hope? You know what I love most about God is he is a God of hope. God says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me to do. I'm sure he looked at me and said, this is going to push it, but I can do this one too. (laughs) Let me tell you something about the brain. Now, I wish my wife was here to talk about this because she knows it much better than I do. But God engineered our brains for recovery, restoration, and renewal. Okay. We are wired for change. Now, the problem with many of us is we have been raised in a society that endorses or supports a fixed mindset mentality versus a learning mindset mentality. Okay, what is a fixed mindset? A fixed mindset says, I was born this way. My father was this way. My grandfather was this way. There's nothing I can do about it. I am damaged goods. That's just the way I am. A fixed, let me give it a practical example. Dr. Dr. Um, Dr. Judith Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, is a social psychologist back in the East Coast in Boston. She did experiments with children, and she she isolated one group of children by psychological testing as fixed mindset children. Another group of children were learning mindset children. God's religion is one of learning. God always wants us to be learning. God likes a learning mindset. God made the brain to expand and increase and grow. These little children that were in a fixed mindset, she would give them a hard puzzle to do. When they got the puzzle done, they only wanted to do the same type of puzzle from then on because their whole self-worth is wound up in performance. A fixed mindset is wound up in performance. If I get an A, I must be good. If I get a D, I must be stupid. That's fixed mindset. Okay? A learning Dr. Dweck gave puzzles to this to another group of four-year-olds, and when they got done with a hard puzzle, they said, Dr. Dweck, give us another hard puzzle. We like the challenge. Okay, it's a learning mindset. Learning mindset is all around what can I learn from this? How can I be better through this experience? That's why Jesus in the Bible tells us to in everything give thanks. What can you learn from this? Okay, so say I'm a passive man. What did I have to do to get out of that passive mentality? Number one, I had to fix my mindset. I had to change the way I thought. Instead of saying, instead of, see, many, many men who are afraid to make decisions don't make, they, they become passive because that's a safe zone. They need to step out of that comfort zone and realize making, if you never make a mistake, you're not growing. Do you know that almost every single man on the Forbes 500 multimillionaire list has declared bankruptcy at least one time? What does that tell you? Every millionaire was once broke. So, what does that tell you? If you're broke, does that mean you're a failure? In a fixed mindset, it does. But in a learning mindset, the learning mindset says, what can I learn from this to make me better? So, as I came out of my passive mentality, I didn't even know how to lead that in a Bible study. With my own family. That's my job as a man is to be the spiritual leader in my home. So as I began to do this, every day I had to say, Lord, how do I learn how to be like you? How do I learn to be a leader? Lord, set up circumstances today to teach me to be different. And friends, every time you make a choice to be different, your brain begins to change in that direction. Did you know that the brain of a a drug addict reflects his environment? He's got an addicted brain. But as that drug addict begins to make choices to do new things to move away from his addiction, his brain begins to change structurally to reflect the new environment he's going toward. So as I began to make small decisions, in other words, when my wife would say, um, what, "What would she say to me?" She would say, "Dane, have you have you done something?" And if I if I hadn't done it, rather than saying, "Yeah, I did it," I'd say, "No, I haven't done it," but. I'm going to get it done tomorrow by 3. Put a time limit on what I had to do. So I had to force myself into making a decision. And when I, when I went down for worship in the morning, I'd say, Lord, what do you want me to share this morning for worship? Or I've got to challenge my family. i got to lead them to the throne of righteousness. And one thing I started doing as a father is as we were having worship, I'd say to Anthony, who was, my, who was my youngest, I'd say, Anthony, what do you think this passage means to you? Gina, what do you think this passage means to you? Why am I saying that? I'm trying to find out where they are spiritually. How they're interpreting that passage, what their thought processes are, so I can see where they are spiritually. Nine times out of ten, I was stalling because I didn't know what the answer was. I'd say, "What do you think it is, Gina?" Well, I don't know, Daddy. What do you think it is, Anthony? I don't know, Daddy. What do you think it is, Vicky? I don't know, sweetheart. All going all the time of saying, "Lord, I don't know what it is. Please tell me what it is." And by the time it was time for me to tell what it was, the Lord told me what it was. You see, as we start stepping out of it, now ladies, if you've got a passive husband, it means you're going to have to learn how to be very patient. Because you don't move from being a passive man to being a an Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight. It takes time to grow. It takes time for the brain to change. And every time your husband makes the right choice, say, sweetheart, I'm so, that's, that, that's a wonderful decision. I'm so proud of you for making, you know? Dr. Dweck, Talks about something that she did to try to get these children out of a out of a fixed mindset. She gave a whole group of kids a a a, a math assignment, and four of the kids got it done really fast. And said, "Dr. Dweck, we're done." And you know what she said? She didn't say, "You are you're just little geniuses. Well, you're Albert Einstein." She didn't say that because that's fixing children in a fixed mindset. What she said was, "I'm so sorry, I didn't challenge you with something harder. Let's get something that you can really work on." It's a whole different mindset, isn't it? You see, what we want to do in a marriage or in our children or even in our religion, God is always challenging us to come up what? Higher. That's learning mindset. Learning mindset. Learning mindset. When when Peter fell down in the water, did the Lord kick him before He picked him up? Did He say, swallow a few gulps of water, Peter. I want to teach you. No, He picked him up and He put him back on the road again. And He said, what can you learn from this, Peter? Well, can you, Ellen White says that if we fall into sin, she says, take it to Jesus, ask him to forgive you, then believe that he does, and learn so that you won't fall that way again. That's a learning mindset. So that you can turn your mistakes into victories. And little by little, as I began to change, as I began to practice, as I began to practice being a leader, I actively look for situations to show my leadership. I'm still growing in that area. My wife is still being patient with me. You know, I don't know how she did it. I every time I think about it, I think, man, she's really a saint. But you grow step by step, whether it's in a in the spiritual realm or the physical realm or the financial realm or whatever realm it is. Rather, when you when you fall, don't say, What a dummy, I knew I couldn't do it. Say, Lord, what can I learn from this? How did I fall this time? Oh, yeah, that's what I did. Lord, I'm not going to do it. By Your grace, I won't do that again. And as you do that, your brain begins to change. Structurally change. Physically change. That's that's an amen spot. Yeah, amen! That means that you don't have to stay the way you are. I like that. We serve a God of possibility. God says no matter what type of background you've had, no matter how many bad marriages you've been in, no matter how much you were abused, no matter what happened, I can change your brain. That's what God says. But we have to cooperate with God. Jeffrey Schwartz is a very interesting neurosci- a neuroscientist who is using quantum physics to measure to measure brain change based on decisions. And he says in his book, I don't even know if this man's a Christian. He's probably a Jew with a name like Schwartz. Or he could just be German. I don't know. But he says, this is his quote. It is time for medical science to come to grips with the fact that willed, directed mental activity changes the structure of the brain. Willed, directed, goal-focused. Friends, what does the Bible say? Keep your eyes what? Fixed on Jesus. By beholding, we become changed. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's science. Dr. John Rady, a a neuropsychiatrist from Harvard University, said this. He said, genes do not make a man gay, happy, or fat. Genes make proteins. It's how we choose to relate to our environment, how we choose to relate to our genes that determines who we are. He says, there is no greater power you have than the power of your will to change your brain. Friends, do you realize what that means? That means that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's science. Don't get me going on that one. Anyway, did that answer your question? We have to consciously make a choice that we're not going to stay that way and then say, God, I don't want to stay that way. You won't let me stay that way. Change me, Lord, as I cooperate with You. And God says, I'm in the business Of making changes. And God begins to change us. And the more we change, the more we like it. And the more we like it, the more we change. It's a vicious cycle to good. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Any other questions before we go on? Any other questions? Yes, no, maybe? Okay. Let's look in this next section about... Where? Where do we worship? The main where is what we're going to talk about. And let's start with Joshua chapter 4 and verse 6. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 6. Notice what it says. God did something very interesting in Israel. God did something very interesting, and this is one of the, we're going to see what he did. He says, let's go to verse 5. Joshua said unto them, this is when they're passing over the Jordan, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take you up, every man of you, a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of your tribes, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, where it passed over. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Look at Exodus chapter twelve and verse twenty six. Exodus chapter twelve and verse twenty six. Exodus twelve verse twenty six says this. God is talking about um one of the one of the, the Passover. He's talking about what they're going to do at the Passover. And then he says in verse 26, It shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? You shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our, our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 20. Notice here, God says, And when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, showing signs and wonders. Friends, what are we seeing in all of these passages? What are we seeing? God is giving something physical for the children to see, so they'll say lord they'll say "Daddy," what does that mean? In fact, we read in the in the sanctuary service that they were to take all the ashes of the of the heifers and the and the goats and the bulls and the and the sheep that were burned, and they were to pour them out on the east side of the altar. Now that meant that the brazen altar, the door of the sanctuary was here, the brazen altar was right there, they would pour the ashes out right there so when they walked by the altar, that when they would look inside, you could see this big pile of ashes there, and God said, when your children see those ashes and say, what mean those ashes, then they were to tell them about the story of salvation. So, we see all through the Old Testament, God gave visible signs to add, to, to, to encourage people to ask questions. What do you mean by those stones? What do you mean by these services? What does it mean by those ashes? People were to see something to make them ask, what do you do that for? That's what God gave it for. Now let's bring that down to today. Because as we look at this next phase of worship, this is where some of you might get upset with me, but take it to the Lord. He can understand. I can't. <clears throat> look at what Jesus says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 12-13. to then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. You shall not go after gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. If you go about, if you go after those gods, he will, the, the, the Lord will come against you. He's a jealous God and the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Friends, in the book of Deuteronomy, just before they went into the promised land, warning after warning after warning after warning was given to the children of Israel. Don't go into false worship. Don't do what you want to do. Don't worship how you want to worship because God will cut you off. We see it all over the place. And what God has done here is God is giving us an example of why He gave us Christian lifestyle today. You see, God knows that I am so easily let out after the world that He has designed in His mercy, in His grace, and in His great love a lifestyle that my children will say, Daddy, why do we do this? And then I can tell them why. So the world will say, why do you, I want to tell, this is a great story. I want to tell you a story. We were coming back from doing a, a, a meeting here in Loma Linda years ago and we were we had been, you know, eating nice food and doing all the, all the things that, that God helps us to do. Well, Vicki had read a study that shows that you were in greater danger of dying from airplane food than from an airplane accident. <laughs> it's true. It was a medical study that was done. It was a medical study. So I told Vicki, you know, we've been traveling a lot and I said, Vic, I do not want to eat another airplane meal. I'm just, I can't take it. So she said, well, let's stop by the Stater Brothers right up here on, you know, on Barton Road. So let's go up there and we'll buy. I mean, what's the favorite? What's going to be the first meal in heaven? Haystacks. (laughs) Promised land meal, haystacks. She said, let's get some haystacks. We said, hey, great idea. So we went and got some nice refried beans. We got some baked chips. We got some lettuce. We got some avocados. We got all these things. We carried it on the airplane. We're sitting in a DC-10. Three, no, yeah, three, four, three. So Gina, Anthony, Vicki were over here. I'm right here on the row, on this aisle. So, they get their meal out, and you know they're pushing their carts down, down the aisle, filled with their little cadavers, you know, dead flesh in there. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it. Grandma dies, we bury her. The cow dies, we eat it. Doesn't make sense. Anyway. <clears throat> She's, the, the, the stewardess is walking down the aisle, pushing her little cart. And we're getting our haystacks together. Okay? I mean, when you eat, when you're a vegetarian, you can eat. I mean, you can eat. God gave us taste buds, let's enjoy them, right? I mean, let's be, be let's be, you know, moderate and temperate, but let's enjoy the taste buds. So we were filling up our plate, and this is what the stewardess did. She's walking down, she goes, She said, did we give you that? And Vicky said, no. And she said, well, what is it? And Vicky said, oh, this is a haystack. Haystack? What's a haystack? And Vicky started talking to her. Well, this stewardess sat down and she talked to Vicky for 20 minutes, telling her about her PMS and about all her problems and this is going on and that's going on. All of a sudden she goes, ah, I gotta get back to work. She flies down the aisle. Five minutes later, a stewardess comes back. Do you eat cheese? Never seen this woman in her lives. Do you eat cheese? Well, we start talking to her about that. She starts talking to her about all her problems. She leaves. Another stewards come back. How about milk? You guys drink milk? Never seen the guy before in our lives. I'm expecting the pilot to come out any minute. You know, <laughs> there go. What did we have to do to be a witness for Jesus? Just eat. Just eat. That's all we had to do. And that's exactly what God says. That when they see that, they'll say, what mean these things that you're doing? Friends, you know how many blessings we're missing by not living God's lifestyle? You know how many? Yes, sir. Should we not eat meat? Well, that's between you and God. But let me say for me and my house, based on the scientific evidence, the scientific evidence is saying that if you want to have a clear brain, a good heart, a good liver, a good pancreas and good weight, shy away from meat and go to plants and food as grown. I mean, the, the clinical evidence is very, very abundant. But God never gives a prohibition against eating clean meat in the Scriptures. However, He did say in Isaiah 25 that as we get closer to the end of time, the earth will groan under the curse of sin. And we're there. We're there. We're much better off, I think, in my life, I decided that for me it's better to be a total plant-based person. Pardon me? We'll, we'll talk later, all right? Listen, you know, when we come right down to it, it is so easy to eat in this day and age. I mean, you can get anything you need that is healthy. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I went out the other day, I play racquetball four times a week, because you know you know what science is calling insulin now? I'm just calling exercise. Silent insulin. New clinical research has found that when you get a good bout of aerobic exercise, your cells are sensitive to insulin, highly sensitive to insulin for two days. It's like giving yourself a shot, man. It's like if, if you have diabetes, exercise, walk, swim, ride your bike, whatever it is. One bout of exercise increases insulin sensitivity for two days. One 10-minute walk increases your mood for one hour. Anybody can do that. I mean, if you're working at the university and somebody just spouted off it, you just run up the steps for 10 minutes. Run down, run up, run down. You come back and say, I feel so good. You know what's happening? You have something... I'm, I'm not going to tell you any more of that. No, that's all right. Let me just tell you, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has designed a lifestyle that would, that the world will see and say, why are you doing that? Our children will say, Daddy, why do we do this? And it will remind us Every day, don't go after the world. Don't be like the world. Don't worship like the world. God reminds us every day. Why? Because He wants us to suffer? No, because He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want us to suffer. So let's look at this thing about lifestyle. Let's look at where we worship God. Let's look at where we worship God. Look at Psalm chapter 34. Psalms chapter 34 and verse 1. Because this really sums up worship in a nutshell. David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Isn't that beautiful? David was saying, I am constantly in a state of worship before God. You see what we learned in the last lesson, in the last session? Diet is an act of worship. Dress is an act of worship. What I watch is an act of worship. What I listen to is an act of worship. And friends, let me tell you, we cannot listen to worldly music from Sunday to Friday and expect to be satisfied with godly music on Sabbath. doesn't happen because you are stimulating portions of the brain and the more we stimulate portions of the brain the more those portions of the brain grow do you know you can take a person who is overweight who is very very satisfied or is very used to hedonic food highly high rich high sugar high fat food and go to the motor strip of the brain and the area of the brain for the tongue and the lips is overdeveloped based on the food they're eating that's an addictive profile they are addicted to highly Um, sweet, highly fat foods. Their brain reflects their environment. And friends, as we listen to worldly music, we can't enjoy godly music on Sabbath. So what's the solution? Bring worldly music in on Sabbath? No way. No way. The solution is you change the way you worship God the other six days of the week so you can truly worship Him on Sabbath. That's God's solution. Man's solution has it backward. Man's solution says let's bring in a... Man's solution is Sarah's solution. Well, Abraham, we don't have a baby. Why don't you go into Hagar? That will be our solution. You never get a godly solution with a carnal, a godly answer with a carnal solution. It never works. It never works. We're going to look at that more in just a minute. Okay, we see, we already look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your what? Spiritual worship. Friends, the lifestyle message we have is not an optional message. It is an act of spiritual worship. Did you ever think about that? When I sit down to this beautiful table that God sets before me with the beautiful colors, not jelly beans, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the reds and the blues and the and the pinks and the greens and and just a beautiful array of colors that God gives us. It's an act of worship where I say, Lord, you furnish a table before me. God does. And listen, friends, do you know what how powerful this is? That did you know that that the red lycopene in a tomato is a stress hormone of the tomato. Lycopene, the redder a tomato, the more stress it's been through. But it just so happens that that lycopene that the the tomato produced for stress helps lower disease in my body. Especially in men. Good for prostate health. These phytochemicals are God... We we call the Department of Defense... We we call the the fruits and vegetable department the Department of Defense filled with God's smart bombs. God's smart bombs go into the body and they weed out disease. And those little phytochemicals just gobble up like a little Pac-Man. And what do I have to do? Just eat. Get exercise. Keep a, good bite. Keep a good mental environment. You see, God has designed a lifestyle where I can praise Him and remember the danger that I have of going after the world just by sitting down to my breakfast table. So when I sit down, the oatmeal reminds me I'm God's child. The, the the blueberries remind me I'm God's child. The raspberries remind me I'm God's child. The high grain bread, at least two grams of fiber per slice. That little commercial there. Two grams of fiber per slice reminds me I'm God's child, that He loves me. He doesn't want me to be sick. And He's designed the lifestyle that gives me an edge in this sinful world. Come on, somebody give me an amen. That's good news. God gives us an easy way to avoid disease. When Moses came to town, life got rough. Right? Pharaoh said, these people are getting too lazy. Make make them gather their own straw and make double the amount of bricks. And the people went to Moses and said, Moses, get out of here. Since you've come, our life has become miserable. We don't even have a life anymore. It's been nothing but tr- drudgery since you've come to town. Were they right? Yes. They were speaking truth. Why did God let that happen? You better believe it. He was saying, I'm going to make your life so miserable. I'm going to make it so unbearable that anybody in his right mind will never want to come back here again. Because God saw the temptations they would face in the desert. So they get out of the desert. What do they say? The first time they get thirsty, we wish we were back in Egypt. You wish you were what? Back in slavery? Where you had to make your own bricks and gather your own straw? Are you serious? You'd rather be back there? Listen, friends. God knows the pull of human lust. God knows how how we love pleasure and ease. And God, in His great mercy, lets us see how hard it is to live a worldly lifestyle so we'll never want to go back. Is there any, let me, let me ask you, Norm, you're a doctor, is there, is there, there are few things that are as slavery-driven as diabetes. You're a slave to a needle or to a pill. Every day of your life, just to stay alive, you've got to give yourself a shot. Cancer is a hard taskmaster. High blood pressure is a hard taskmaster. Senility is the hardest taskmaster. And yet we see the clinical evidence that, that the, that the average American, the sad, the standard American diet, the sad diet leads to that disease and we'd still rather be in the, in the, in the flesh pots of Egypt than live for God. You see, God gives us lifestyle. God gives us these lifestyle choices to remind us you don't want to go there. You don't want to go back to where you were. Look at the table God spreads before us. Have you ever, who was at that fellowship dinner today? Did anybody feel hungry after it was over? Man, it was a feast. It was a feast. And I, the thing I like about it is it all tastes good. It tastes good. And you don't have to worry about all the things that those other lifestyles, that those other lifestyles do. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Notice what he says. He says, I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. Lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Look what he says in verse twenty five. Every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in what? All things. Friends, do you realize that when we sit down to eat, we are worshiping God? We should be? Yes, brother. What's the difference between what? Yes? Yeah? We need need to try to take in the best air, the best water, and the best food we can get. But you've got to take what you can get. And if you can't live in a place where the air is clean, then you better be doubly sure you're eating a good diet and drinking good water and having good exercise. You see, the beauty of the human body is it's very resilient. It, it just bounces back very quickly, but only if we treat it right. So, God has given us balances in all these things. Now, let's move on here. Let's move on here, because even Paul, the greatest preacher of righteousness, realized there was nothing he could do to earn salvation, but there were things he could do to lose it. you see that there? I keep, I keep under my body, verse 27, and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, I want you to look at something in Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, notice what David says here in verse 34 to 37. Psalm 106, 34 and 37. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom God commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works and served their idols. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to devils. Friends, do you see what happens when we start compromising with worship? When we start bringing in things that God didn't say, we will end up doing things we never thought we would do. How many of us today are offering our children to the idol of television or to the idol of bad music or to the idol of video games or to the idol of of whatever it might be, worldly dress or whatever else? Look at... Um, Psalm chapter 78. In Psalm chapter 78, we're going to look at verses 17 and 19. It says, And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Holy One in the wilderness, and they tempted the God in their hearts by asking meat for the lust. Yea, they spake against God, and they said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? You see, God had given them angel food. God had given them the manna of heaven, the corn of heaven. And they weren't satisfied. Now notice in verse 32. Notice verse 32. It says, For all this they stand still the more and believe not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. Verse 37. For their heart was not right with him Neither were they steadfast in His covenant. Verse 41, Yea, they turned their back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Friends, how many of us, by our lifestyle choices, are limiting the Holy One of Israel? God is not able to do in our lives what He wants to do because we refuse to do what He asks us to do. It's very interesting. As you read on in this passage, just read on there sometime. It's just incredible what goes on. But look at in verse, at chapter 106 again. Look what happens here in chapter 106 in verse 13. Verse 12, They believed His words, they sang His praise when all the things were going right, but they soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. You know what that word leanness means in the Hebrew? Wasting diseases. Wasting diseases. And friends, we need to understand that in this dietary realm, in, this, in these dietary things, God has given us a lifestyle. God has given us a way of eating, a way of drinking that will bring honor to His name. That will bring glory to His name. Friends, God looks at the high standard He has set. Life of victory in Jesus Christ. And He says, you know what? I'm going to give them a lifestyle that will make it easier for them to live that way. I'm going to give them a lifestyle that will clear up their brains so they can hear my my voice speaking to them. I'm going to give them a lifestyle that will show them how much I love them and protect them from going after the ways of the world. That's why I believe in that message of health that God gives us. Because it is a safeguard. It is a worship act where I am coming to God and saying, God, I sure would like to have that Big Mac, but I know that's not the best for me. I'm going to do what you want me to do. God, I sure would like to eat. I used to be, I used to be addicted to Twinkies. Oh, Twinkies were my big one. And then I went to a meeting where a man was there and he said, my dad works for the Continental Baking Company. He said, you know how long a Twinkie lasts on the shelf? Twenty years. NPR just had a story. Did you hear that story about NPR where a teacher in Wisconsin Put a pack of Twinkies on his blackboard in 1969. And when he took them off the shelf just one year ago, they were fresh as the day he put them up. And this fellow that worked, his father worked for Continental Baking Company he said, Dane, next time you get it, next time you're, you're dick, you, you want a Twinkie, remember, they're just little embalmed pharaohs wrapped in cellophane. That cured me. <laughs> that cured me. Now I'm not saying we never have sugar. But we're talking about, you know, the average American's eating a lot of sugar. We're not talking about dinner mints here, friends. We're talking about the average you know how much sugar is in one thing of Mountain Dew? One thirty-two ounce of Mountain Dew? 32 teaspoons of sugar. And and caffeine, but 32 teaspoons of sugar clogs everything. Anyway, we need to understand that God has given us these dietary friends. I worship God at my breakfast table. I worship God at my lunch table. I worship God. I remember one day I was at a I was at a at a at a wonderful vegan cook's house, and she made these great cookies. I went and had the first cookie and I ate it, man, it was good. I got the second cookie and ate it and it was good. I went to eat the third cookie and the Lord said, uh-uh, two. I said, but Lord, these are health cookies. He said, yes, two are healthy. Now I'm just talking for me. The Lord may be different with you, but I'm talking about me. Was that a test for me? was I now called upon to worship God in my body and in my spirit, which are God's. So even in the day, in the area of diet, the Lord reminds me, I need to worship Him in everything. I need to ask His permission in everything. And it's really cool, because God always knows what He's doing. Okay. Ellen White says, errors in eating lead to errors in acting. Hmm. Interesting. Let's move on. This is the one that people really get upset with me on. We're going to talk about Christian dress for just a minute. Because God has also designed a lifestyle. Let me me go in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. God said this to the children of Israel. Numbers 15, verse 38. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue and it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes which, at which you used to go a-whoring that ye may remember and do all the commandments of the Lord and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. The Lord said, I want you, Israel, I want you, Seventh-day Adventists, to dress in such a way that you are reminded daily that you belong to me. I don't want you to dress according to what Givenchy said you're supposed to wear, or what what, what Paris Hilton says you're supposed to wear, or what, what what Regis Philbin says you're supposed to wear, or what Kathy Lee Crosby says you're supposed to wear. God says, I call the shots in your life. Remember that woman who came to touch the hem of Jesus' garment? Remember that woman? Why? Now, you know, think about this for a minute. Why wouldn't she say, if I can just touch His hand, I'll be healed? If I can just touch His face, I'll be healed. What'd she say? If I can just touch the hem of His garment? Why'd she say that? Because that ribbon of blue meant something to the Jew. That ribbon of blue said, I will be holy to the Lord. I will obey God. I belong to God. And she was saying, if I can just, just touch the hem of his garment, I'm telling God, God, I want to obey you. I want to be whole. I want you to be my God. You see, to the Jew, to the Jew, God had designed that their dress would tell. Listen now. God had designed that ribbon of blue so that when when they walk down the street, everybody knew there goes a Jew. They serve God. Friends, when Seventh Day Adventists walk down the street, our demeanor, the way we're dressed, should say there goes a Seventh Day Adventist. There goes someone who serves God, not the God of fashion. There goes someone who has a higher calling in life. They don't, they don't want to say, look at me. Their dress says, look at God. Ladies, I want to talk to you now as a brother in Christ. How can I put this? When the Bible says male and female created he them, it means it. Did you know that the corpus callosum in a woman is very highly developed, more highly developed than a man? That's where they can multitask very well. Did you know that a man and a woman who are the same weight, a man's brain will weigh about 185 grams more than a woman's of the same size and weight. A man's brain is bigger. God made us different. Women can multitask. Women can do many things well. Men do one or two things extremely well. God made us that way. Now ladies, God also made us another way. God made men very visual creatures. It's not my fault. God made me that way. God calls me to keep it in check. God doesn't give me license to look a woman up and down. But God made me a visual creature. And you know, well, um, uh, Madison Avenue spends millions of dollars to study how to get people to buy products. And you look at a product made for a man, it's shaped like this. Or like this. Okay, think about these two shapes. Triangles and pairs. Any part of your anatomy that matches those two shapes? She she understands up here. How about the rest of you? Okay, pairs and triangles. Satan knows what he's doing. Satan has designed a lifestyle to get men to be sexually impure. Now, ladies, the Bible tells me and tells you that it's our job to guard one another's weaknesses. I had to live in a world where television commercials, billboards, TV shows, everything screams sexuality. Everything screams, go ahead and do it, you're going to do it anyway, to us as men. Ladies, you don't know the struggle we go through as men. Men, can you put your hands up and be honest today? Do we go through struggles? If you're not putting up your hand, you don't have any testosterone in your body. But God calls upon me through His power to keep that in check. Because through God I can do all things. However, however, as ladies, you have a religious, a religious duty to safeguard my eyes. And I want to tell you, ladies, it's really hard for us men to come to church and worship when we've got to be going like this all the time. Ladies come in with their dresses slit way up to their armpit. They come under this typhoon, they gotta keep pulling like this, trying to keep their dress down. And they bent we were in Sabbath school one day and a woman bent over and a little boy went. And it was my little boy. And he said, Mommy, I guess Sabbath school teachers shouldn't bend over, should they? I mean, here's here's the spiritual principle. If you bend over, you shouldn't be able to see north to south. If you raise your arms, you shouldn't be able to see east to west. Right? Yeah. So God says to you ladies, ladies, come to church dressed like you are here to worship, not going to a nightclub to attract a one-night stand. Plunging necklines have no place in church. Slits up to here have no... How would you feel if men came to church... Now, excuse me, I don't want to be vile, but I'm just trying to get a point. How would you feel if men came to church with their flies open? Everybody's walking around with their zipper down. What would you say? Hey, come on, man. You're in church. So why can ladies come to church dressed any way they want to and we're supposed to accept it? And if we say anything, you say, you're just a dirty old man. Get your mind in the right place. No. The Bible says if I cause my brother to fall, God holds me responsible. Now, if you're dressed in a modest way and a man still lusts, that's his problem, not yours. But if you come to church advertising body parts, that's not what church is for. You are bearing false witness against your neighbor. You are saying, I'm available when you're not. You see, as we look at the sanctuary service and the consecration of the priest, God shows very plainly that how we come dressed before Him makes all the difference in the world. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. Look at this for just a minute. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. Now friends, if we are a kingdom of priests and God gave the high priest very specific directions on how to come dressed in worship, should we think that those admonitions apply to us too? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says we are a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people zealous of good works. Did you know that according to Leviticus chapter 8 verses 33 and 35 that the the, the consecration of the priest was a 7-day process again signifying the covenant relationship of God with this priest? God was saying, if you want to abide in the covenant process, you need to come before me in the way that I specify. Now the interesting thing was, Aaron was the older brother. Who had the birthright, Aaron or Moses? Aaron. Who taught Aaron how to dress? Moses. Why? Because Moses is a type of crop. And what God is saying here is cogent for us to understand. In order for Aaron, the birthright brother, to listen to little brother Moses was a humiliating process. He had to put away his pride. He had to say, Lord, you're speaking through this man. I will listen. Friends, that's what we must do in our dress before God. We must be willing to put away our pride, to put away our love of fashion, to put away what we have felt comfortable with and realize that God tells us how to come before him in worship. God tells us how to dress before him. God tells us what's best. That's why we read in Colossians chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 that she have put off the old man with his works and have put on the new man which is renewed in the knowledge of God who created him. So, what does that mean we do? What does that mean we do? Look at this. Look at Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. Let's start at verse 10. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. Now look at verse 12. And he poured the ointment upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. Verse 15. And Moses slew the sacrifice, and Moses took the blood, and put it on the horns of the altar round about with his finger, and purified the altar, and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. Now look at verse 23. And he slew the sacrifice, and Moses took the blood of it, and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. Now look at verse 30. And Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which is upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons' and his sons' garments with him. Friends, if the sanctuary was committed to God and the altar was committed to God and Aaron was committed to God, then so were his clothes. So was his dress. And it's interesting here. Notice what it says. In verse 23, he slew it and Moses took the blood and put it upon the right lobe of Aaron's ear and on the right thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his big foot. What's that saying? What's that saying? He's saying what I hear is sanctified to God. What I do is sanctified to God. Where I go is sanctified to God. I'm not in charge of my life anymore. All my senses are given to God. Exodus chapter twenty-eight verses forty to forty-three Exodus twenty-eight verses forty to forty-three. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make them girdles and bonnets, thou shalt make them for for the glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them and consecrate them, sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from their loins, even to the thighs shall they reach. And they were told that when they came into the sanctuary, when they went up the steps, they were to take that garment and cover, lest that shame of their nakedness appear. Friends, many of us are coming to church far too naked. And let's even go one step further. There is a strange and troubling trend in the church today to come before God dressed like we're going to a picnic. Open shirts, short pants, you know, thongs, the the little shoes, you know, not the other thongs, the bad ones, but these little thongs that they wear. Friends, are we coming before God or are we coming before just anybody? We're coming before God. Now, I'm not talking here about somebody who walks in off the street. If we have a prostitute that walks in off the street dressed like a hooker, what do we do? We welcome her with open arms and make her feel welcome here because she doesn't know better. But if a sister comes through the door dressed like a hooker, what do you do? You need to learn how to deal with it in a very godly, gentle way, in a very loving way, lest you yourself be tempted through being ungodly with her. But friends, there's got to be some instruction going on. We just don't say, oh, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We talked about that, didn't we? I mean, not hooker, I mean, you know. I mean, you, you were very modest in your, in your apparel, but we are, we are far too concerned. Listen, why are we so concerned about not hurting the feelings of others and we don't care about God's feelings? God has told us something. Are we more concerned with serving man or serving God? You see, the way we come dressed is a worship issue. Can we be like God on the inside and look worldly on the outside? Come on now, you're all getting very quiet out there. Can we look like god on the can we be like God on the outside, on the inside and dress like the world on the outside? Friends God says if you really want to worship me. If you really believe you're coming to worship the God of Israel, the Holy One, the God who inhabits eternity, the God who invented modesty, you will come dressed like it. It's interesting as we look at Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. What was the very first thing they did wrong? They ate wrong. What was the second thing they did wrong? They dressed wrong. And what was the first thing God did when He came? He took off the little caveman clothes and put on angel clothes. They had little aprons on. God made them coats to cover them up. I know, ladies, you live in a society that worships sex, worships beauty, worships good figures and all those other things, but we don't serve the world. We serve God. And the Bible says that the true beauty is the inner man, is the inner woman that loves God and serves God in holiness. You know, in the cleansing of the law of the leper, not only was the leper checked, his clothing was checked as well. Think about it. Let's move on. Let's move on. Oh, one thing we got to look at here. Genesis chapter 34. You know the story of Dinah? The story of Dinah? Dinah in chapter 34. Dinah was raped. And in chapter thirty-five, God said unto Aaron, "Arise, go to Bethel. This is verse one, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou did when thou fledst from Esau." Then Jacob said unto his household and all that were with him, "Put away the strange gods that are among you, and clean and change your garments." Abraham, Jacob knew right away that when you dress like the world, you get a worldly response. Ladies, I challenge you today. If you want those of you who are not married. If you want to attract a godly man, you're not going to do it dressed like a woman that, 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 that wants a worldly man. If you're advertising body parts, you're going to get a worldly man. If you're advertising God, you're going to get a godly man. It's the way it works. It's a natural. It's a natural axiom. And ladies, if you're already married, don't be advertising what you have to other married men. It's not theirs to see anyway. It's not. It's not theirs to see. You see, this is an act of worship. It's saying, God, you're in charge. God has designed us when we go to our cupboard and open up the doors. The very clothing in our, in our, in our wardrobe should remind us, I belong to God. I am easily let out of the world. I want to dress for God, not for fashion. I want to dress for God, not for other people. I belong to God. I am a queen. I am a king. I'm going to dress like. You. Well, let's move on. We got one more to, to cover here in lifestyle. And this is a biggie. This is a biggie. Music. And you know, we don't have to get real specific on this. But let me show you something very interesting. Because if you look in the Bible, look at Second Chronicles. Look in the book of Second Chronicles. This is one of those things that God, in His great wisdom, has left to faith. Look at 2 Chronicles. And we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Now, friends, we could spend two whole one-hour sessions just on music from the Bible, but we don't have time to do that. We're just going to do a, a bird's-eye view of this. You'll study it on your own. Because you'll notice that here the temple had laid in ruins. Hezekiah has just begun to reign in chapter 29. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he sees in verse 6 that his fathers have trespassed and that was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they've turned their backs on him and they've, they've made the temple a worship place for for, for um, idols. And he tells, the, he tells the priest to go down and clean the temple up. In verse 16, the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to clean it up and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad and took it to Kindron. Now they began in the first day of the first month to sanctify it. And they worked all the way till the 16th day of the first month. That means it took them two weeks to clean up the house of God. It was filthy. It was in bad shape. And they take out all those things. Then it says in verse 20, Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went to the house of the Lord and they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven goats. Are you seeing the seven there again? They're saying, God, we're your covenant people again. You are our covenant God again. And they brought forth, verse 23, the goats for a sin offering. Verse 24, they killed them and made reconciliation with the blood. Now look at verse 25. Now remember, they've cleaned up the whole house of God. They've, they've made the, the altar ready again. They've taken out all the garbage. But look what they do next. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and with psalteries and with harps. According to the commandment of David and of Gad the King Seer and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord God by his prophets. Friends, God had something to say about music in the temple. God had something to say. They are now cleaning up the way they worship God in their music. <clears throat> verse twenty six And the Levites sit with the instruments of David and the priests and the, with the trumpets, and now listen to this, verse twenty seven and Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offerings upon the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord began also. Friends, don't miss this. You have the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. We can't keep it the way we think we should keep it. We do it the way God says to. You have the sanctuary of the Lord thy God. We can't do what we want to do in this sanctuary. Now you have the song of the Lord your God. We can't sing anything we want to sing in church. We need to do what God says to sing in church. They began to sing the song of the Lord. Began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, the king of Israel. And all the congregation worshiped. You didn't have one group over here saying, we don't like that song. We're going to have our own. We don't like their song. We want our own. They were all together unified by the song of the Lord. Now, here's what we need to understand. Here's the test. The next time you're in a church where music begins to play that you wonder about, close your eyes, don't listen to the words, and say, if I couldn't hear these words, would I think I was in a nightclub or in church? That's the test. Listen, friends, I know most of you here grew up Seventh-day Adventist. You've always been in this sheltered little community. You've always heard the good old gospel hymns. But I was in the world. I know what dance music is. I know what it does to the human psyche. I know what it does to the brain. I was somewhere not long ago and I turned on a religious station on an Adventist campus that I listened to many years ago. I turned on the music. I said, did they sell the radio station? I mean, it was... You like this. But because they put the word Jesus in it, it's religious. Hey, come on, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's take that, let's take that argument. If you put Jesus' name in music, it makes it religious. That's what Constantine said about his army when they marched through the river. Now you're baptized, now you're religious. Let's take the, let's take that, let's take that logic to its ultimate conclusion. If you can add the word Jesus to worldly music and make it religious, then let's open up a Bible Las Vegas. And we'll have, rather than having the ace of spades, we'll have the Peter of spades. And we'll have the John of hearts and the Mary of hearts and the the Andrew of spades. And rather than having numbers, we'll have John 3.16 on one card and we'll have Deuteronomy 25.6 on another card and we can all live like the world and still be Christians and we can gamble and make money for the church. That's where it ultimately goes though. Once we start compromising the standards of God, for one area, it begins to compromise everything else. Listen, friends, a dear friend of mine is Dr. Raymond Holmes. He was a Lutheran pastor, the senior Lutheran pastor in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. His wife became a Seventh-day Adventist. He used to burn her books. She had to hide her books in the garbage can so he couldn't burn them. Finally, he said, I'm going to show her that she is in a cultic religion I'm going to go to their seminary and prove how wrong she is. He went to the seminary and stayed there for 20 years as a faculty member because he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And this is what Dr. Holmes told me. He said, Dane, I've seen it now in my own church, the Lutheran church. I saw it in the Methodist church. I saw it in the Presbyterian church. He said, the minute you start giving credence, to going away from what the Bible says about ordaining women or whatever it might be. He says the churches that start ordaining women within a number of years start ordaining homosexuals. Why? Because the issue is not ordination. The issue is the authority of the Scripture. And once you compromise here, you have opened the floodgate to compromise everywhere else. You have opened a Pandora's box. So this whole issue of music, just close your eyes and say, when I listen to this music, does it lead me to God or away from God? Here's another test you can give it. Here's another test you can give it. And I forgot what the test was. I gotta look at my notes. I could eat more blueberries. I can see that. It helps your memory. Oh. Here's the here's the ultimate test. Listen to this, friends. When you hear music in your church, ask yourself the question Who is leavening Whom? Is the world changing the church's music or is the church changing the world's music? That's the real issue. Because God says, ye are the salt of the earth. Salt changes the food it's in. The food doesn't change the salt. And if we see in our church a trend of, From godly hymns to worldly music, who is leavening whom? Is the world leavening us or are we leavening the world? Think about it. Think about it. And here's something from science. Science is telling us that the 7-Eleven songs, you know what 7-Eleven songs are? You say the same seven words 11 times? That's praise music. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place ever for praise music, but think about this principle. Think about this principle. This is biblical. Okay, When I I love the Seventh-day Adventist church because of its love for little children. Man, when you are a Seventh-day Adventist baby, you are fresh out of the oven and you're sitting in Sabbath school. You're banging sticks. You don't even know what's going on. Baby's sitting there going, you know, the mothers are banging the sticks for them. Why? We're getting them in the habit of worshiping God. So, here they are in Sabbath school, okay? And they sing little children's songs. This is what the clock says. Tick, tock, tick. The trees are gently swaying. I am so glad that... You know, all these. they put flowers on their face and they do this and they do that. And all these little songs. Is that wrong for children to sing that way? No, that's where their little brains are. But... But! How many times do you go into an adult Sabbath school and they're singing little children's songs? Okay, let, let me give you an example. There's a beautiful hymn that says, With thy Spirit fill me, with thy Spirit fill me. I don't have a very good voice, but just pretend, okay? Make me holy, Thine, I pray. With Thy Spirit fill me. Wonderful words. Now, let's get the children's version. I'll fill it up, fill it up, and let it overflow. Fill it up, fill it up, and let it overflow. is you know what you want to do right away? Fill it up. Fill it up with love. Does it have the same effect on your body? Okay, here's the biblical principle. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, When I was a child, I thought as a child. I acted as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Friends, do you realize what Satan has done to us? He's made us little babies in the adult division. We're singing little kids songs. Songs that are okay for kids to sing, but not for adults. Paul said, when you should be eating meat, i got to give you milk. He said, come on folks, grow up! And what Satan has done is he has slid in this praise music. And you know what happens? This is science now. Praise music appeals to the lower centers of learning in the brain. The emotional centers of learning. It doesn't appeal to the high cognitive centers of the brain. And what happens when you overdrive the lower centers is the higher centers don't take over anymore. And now when the lower centers are all you're using in worship, you can get error slid in. You can get error slid in because now your higher cognitive centers have been put on hold because you're singing little baby songs. And little babies don't think deep. Adults do. So Satan has slid this music in Because he knows that, oh yes, we're worshiping, but not the God we think we are. And oh yes, we're sitting in church, but we can hear anything and still believe it because our higher cognitive levels have been put in neutral by the songs we're concentrating on. Do you see how serious this is? It's extremely serious. It's extremely serious. And just ask yourself the question who is leavening who? Is the world's music getting more like the church, or is the church's music getting more like the world? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And listen, friends, uh, I, I have to be careful what I say. Music in the Bible is critical. Here's what here's what the Bible says about music. Look at look at um, I think it's First Samuel chapter sixteen. First <clears throat> Samuel chapter sixteen. Let's go there for just a minute because this is the yeah this is it. First Samuel sixteen twenty three. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took a harp and played with his hand. And here's the three things music should do. Saul was refreshed. Saul was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. Those are the three things godly music will do. And friends, when we have the same driving beat, and the same drum rolls and everything else in godly, in quote-unquote godly music, it's not refreshing. It doesn't drive the evil spirit away. Just adding the word Jesus doesn't make it holy any more than adding Jesus to, 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 to Las Vegas makes it a holy place either. I'll tell you what, we could spend a lot of time on that music issue, but we got to close. But let's look at one more thing. Why does God give us a day of preparation? Ever thought about that? Are you still with me? Look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Verses 10 to 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not into the mount, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. Friends, let, let me let me tell you. Let's put this whole thing in synopsis. Why does God set boundaries on worship? Why did God put a boundary around Mount Sinai? Because He's trying to impress us that He's in charge. He is holy. And it's just by His grace we can approach Him in the first place. Friends, these were not meant to be burdens. These were meant to remind us of how holy God is, of how uplifted God is, and what a pleasure and a privilege it is to come and worship Him. And worship, the, the true object of worship, is not to make me feel comfortable. It's to make me more like God. It's to make me say, wow, I want to have God in my life. All This, this 24 hours has been so awesome. I want Jesus with me all the time. And my brain is saturated with the love of God and my brain is saturated with the mercy of God and my brain is saturated with the grace of God and my brain is saturated with praise to God so that I look at the way I dress and I look at the way that I eat and I look at the way I entertain myself and I say, thank you God for protecting me from the world. Thank you God for building a safeguard around me so Satan can't touch me. Thank you God for loving me so much you've given me a lifestyle to remind me who I belong to. Man, the health message suddenly becomes, I'm, I, I feel good about this. Because it shows God loves me. It shows God's protecting me. It shows that God says, Son, I only want the best for you. I want you to thrive and prosper and be in health. I want you to be protected from the devil. I want your children to be happy. I want your marriage to be secure. I want everything about you to scream, I belong to God. Whew. Doesn't that make you feel good about God. God is good. God is holy. God is just. And God has given us a lifestyle to show that. So the world comes up and says, what do you have that I don't have? What means these things that you do? Why do you eat this way? Why do you dress that way? Why do you entertain yourself that way? Why won't you tell dirty jokes at work? I'll tell you why. Because I serve a risen Savior who's changed my life and given me something to live for. And friends, nothing that's worth living If it's not worth living for, it's not worth dying for. But why did God give us a day of preparation? For this very reason. Joshua said in Joshua 3, verse 5, get ready because God's going to come and meet with you. In Joshua 7, 13, he said, get ready because God's going to come to meet with you. And He's a holy God, an uplifted God, a high God, a powerful God. So God comes down to us today and says, Friday is the day you get ready to meet with the holy God. You see, God knows that we're so careless in our lives. We're so careless in our minds that God says, for the 24-hour period leading into the Sabbath, you need to be preparing every day for the Sabbath, but especially that 24-hour period just before the Sabbath. When you wake up in the morning, you say, today's the day of preparation. I'm going to be home on time. What are you doing? You're setting a readiness pathway in your brain. Gaba is released as you're planning your day, and it makes it ready for you to come home and do your work at night. And when you come home, we should tell our kiddos, now kiddos, you get got to clean the bathroom today and do the best job you can do because this is symbolic of God getting the sin out of your life. This is symbolic of God cleaning up your heart. In order to come before God, you got to be clean. In order to come before God, there's preparation. And friends, if we would understand the day of preparation, the day of preparation isn't let's get home an hour before sundown so we can clean the house. God doesn't want clean houses. He wants clean hearts. The clean house is a symbol of what God wants inside. All through the Bible, before they can meet with God, they say prepare yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Get ready. You're about to meet. The God of Israel. The covenant-keeping God. The God of power. The God of grace. The God of mercy. The God who wants to set you free from the Egypt of slavery of sin. Can somebody give me an amen? (laughs) Oh, man. I'm sweating. I'm working so hard. Why don't you work along with me, (laughs) alright? This is the God we serve. And I hope that you've seen as we've talked together today how much God loves you. How God is designed. You know, this is what I love about the story of Job. When Satan said, "Well, sure, God, Job serves you. You've built a hedge around him. I can't get to him." Friends, that's what Christian lifestyle does. It builds a hedge around us. It builds a hedge around us so that Satan doesn't have access as freely to us as he would otherwise. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's an act of worship. It's an act of praise to God that He loves me so much He'll protect me. How about it, friends, tonight? As we get ready to close off this weekend, have you caught a new vision of what worship is all about? Have you caught a new vision of what Sabbath stands for? The seventh day, the God of seven, seven churches, seven seals, seven this, seven, the covenant keeping God, friends, the Sabbath is you saying, God, I believe you will save me. Gives me goosebumps. God, I believe you'll save me. And God, I am here today to reaffirm the fact that whatever it takes, I'll do it. Because you'll give me the strength to do it. You'll give me the power to do it. You'll give me the desire to do it. Friends, if you don't want to do right, don't worry about it. Just go to God and say, God, I don't feel like doing this. God said, I know you don't. Ask me to give it to you. God will give you the desire to do right. Thank you for giving me an amen back there. I appreciate that. God will give you the desire to do right. Thank you. Come on, come on, friends. Be happy you're Christians today. Voluntary smiling changes regional brain activity. Is there someone here tonight who's heard God's voice tonight last night and tonight? And you want to say, Lord, I've been a seven-day Adventist, but I want to be a seven-day Adventist. I don't want to just worship You on one day. I want to worship You every day. I want to worship You when I eat. I want to worship You when I dress. I want to worship You in all that I do. I want You to be the Lord, the God of all flesh, and nothing is too hard for You to do. Is there anyone here today who wants to say, Lord, I'm going to make a new commitment to You to live for You and You alone? If there's one person who wants to make that, that true commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to start worshiping You in spirit and in truth. you just want to stand to your feet? Is it going to be easy? But hey, I read the back of the book. We win. With God before us, who can be against us? God will give you the victory. And I challenge you that as you begin to bring your life into harmony with God's will, as you begin to worship God at the office, at the grocery store, on the way to work, at the bank, wherever you go, as you worship God in your lifestyle, as you worship God, you will be a leaven of righteousness in this city. This city will never be the same again if we start living for God. Father in heaven, thank You for this time we could spend together. Lord, some of these issues are tough to to face. Some of them make us feel uncomfortable. But Lord, we thank You that You have promised that all Your biddings our enablings. And Lord, please guard us against fanaticism, where we become the dietary posse for those around us. Lord, help us to realize that we can only change our own lives, nobody else's. That you call us to be an example, not a sledgehammer. Father, help us to have the balance that only you can bring. To realize we are not doing this to be saved, but because You have saved us through your grace. And we want to show you our love through our acts of submission and dedication to your will. Father, bless these precious people. Let them be witnesses for you in all that they do. We thank you for the great God that you are. We pray that you would keep us and that not one of us in this room will be lost, but that we will all be able to worship you through the countless ages of eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. And I hope we'll see each other again sometime.